this week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul in the Roman Tribune. Paul brought to the council. Paul divides the room, plot to kill Paul, and Paul sent to Felix. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. You got all these great answers to all these great questions. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. In the Old Testament, the high priest wore garments, and on those garments were two stones. One was called the Urim. The other one was called the Thummim. What in the world were they about? Why isn't the book of Enoch in the Bible? It exists, but it's not in the Old Testament. And when Christ's righteousness is credited to us, does it ever become our own righteousness? Welcome back to Issues Etc. Coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer joins us. He's a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, he's pastor at St. Paul and Jesus Steph Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel, Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, welcome. Thank you. Pastor Wolfmiller, the first question comes from Sandra She says, I understand God never changes. I also understand from the formula of Concord a little about the three modes of Christ's existence, physical, resurrected, and exalted or heavenly. I know that you cannot separate the Father from the Son and the Spirit. I'm trying to understand if the fact that Jesus came to earth, suffered, and died for us causes him to live in heaven in his exalted state in a different way than he was in heaven before his incarnation. Is there something different about him in heaven now after his work? Yeah, it's a wonderful and very astute question. I think to talk first about these three modes of Christ's presence is a way into this, although I don't think it's actually essential to the question. But our formula of Concord, that is our last document of our Lutheran Christian Book of Concord, it talks about how Jesus is present in different ways. The normal presence with which he is with his disciples, he walks with them, talks with them, his spiritual mode of presence in which he neither takes nor vacates space, like when he walked on water, when he walked through the tomb, wall of the tomb in the garden, and then his spiritual heavenly mode of presence by which he is with us according to his flesh and blood, according to his humanity in every place, but most especially where he gives himself to us in the Lord's Supper. And this is all a reflection on how Jesus is able to say, take and eat, this is my body, and how it's his true body, but because it's joined with his divinity, it's able to be in every place. Now, the question then is, really, if we take that out of the questions and ask, does the incarnation change something with God? We want to be very careful as we articulate this. We know that the Lord doesn't change, and this is true not only of his essence, but most especially of his character. And so that promise comes to us as a great comfort. I, the Lord, do not change. And the Lord will say, therefore, repent and I'll be merciful. So the Lord's not changingness is a great comfort to his people. But in a really profound way, and again, let it be said with care, 
that the incarnation gives the divine nature access to all the features of humanity so that now God who is eternal has a birthday. God who is unsleeping falls asleep on the boat. God who provides for everyone their food and their drink is fasting and is hungry and is thirsty. God who is eternal also now dies and is buried. God bleeds and God suffers. And so the incarnation gives God, again, saying this with care, God access to all the features of our humanity precisely so that he can suffer in our place, die in our place, and become our Savior. So that the incarnation of our Lord Jesus gives God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, all of these new abilities, I suppose, or these capacities that do not belong natively to the divine nature. And in that we rejoice. Maybe the most precious scripture for this is when Paul is preaching in Acts chapter 20, this ordination sermon for the pastors there in Miletus, and he talks about shepherding the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And that we can speak of the spilled blood of God is one of the great gifts of the mystery of the incarnation. Now, I think that's probably a good place to start on the meditation on that text. We, again, want to be careful that we don't say that now God is changeable, but we do want to say that the mystery of the incarnation does some wonderful things so that God can be God for us and be our Savior. Christiana in Lubbock, Texas, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, what is up with the Urim and the Thummim? Why were they included in the priest's garments, and what is the distinction between casting lots and divination? What is Christiana talking about? Okay, this is a great question with a lot of speculation and answers that have been given over the centuries on exactly what this is. And so when we look at the Old Testament in particular, we have this specifically in Exodus chapter 28, where Aaron is going to bear the names of the sons of Israel in this breast piece of judgment. So this breast piece is it's of judgment, and the idea is that it's some kind of apron that has a pocket, if you will, so that it can hold these, uh, these two stones. And so Aaron has this breast piece, and he's able to go into the holy place to bring them to a regular remembrance. So he has the, the names of the sons of Israel. He brings them, he bears them before Yahweh in his uh, priestly office. But it's in that breast piece of judgment, he also puts the Urim and the Thummim. And there shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. And so here he is bearing the judgment of the peoples of Israel. And this is key and unique to the priestly office that God himself has instituted. So it's contrary to any other use of such things. Okay, so now it's the question is, what are the things? So what you're looking at is these two words. The first one, when we talk about the Urim, this is going to come from the Hebrew word or or Ur, which would be light, or or Ur, which would be flame. And so it kind of has this idea, connotation of enlightened. Ironically, it is uh, spelt with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. And so one stone would have this 
understanding. Let's just possibly say a speculation is the letter Aleph, first letter of the alphabet. And the other one is going to be from this Hebrew word tamam. So it's tamim. It has to be that the thuum has to do with completeness or fullness or soundness. And this idea of maybe this fulfillment, uh, completeness in words. And it, again, ironically, also, maybe ironically, maybe not, but speculatively, it begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet at the, the top. And so you have the A and the Z, if you will, the alpha, the omega, the olive, and the tav. And so you have these two stones that would be put into this breast piece, and it was initially enacted by Aaron, instituted by God, for the purpose of going to the high priest. And you could ask a question of the high priest and say, is this what Yahweh would want to do? And so when the high priest would pull out these two stones, it's kind of like a yes or no answer. So you're kind of getting this answer from Yahweh. And it's uniquely directly related to this institution. So it's not the use of any stones that any stones would then automatically get a answer from Yahweh, but it's these stones specific to the priestly office specific to the high priest himself. And so that's going to be a difference between any other forms of quote-unquote divination or trying to tell the future or casting lots. So in the scripture, you'll also have this idea of casting lots or drawing straws or even this idea of kind of chance dice or whatever. That, that happens in the pagan world. But what's unique here is it directly tied to the institution of this office of the high priest with God's word. So it's not any type of casting lots. It's not any type of divination, but it's in particular how the living Lord is interacting with his people, with his word. And so you'll have these instances in the Old Testament, like in 1 Samuel chapter 28, where Saul is saying to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, okay? We have this concept of a seance or something where you have a medium, somebody who's trying to mediate into the realm of the spiritual realm. Well, that of course is forbidden by the scripture. That's something contrary to the word of God. But here you had Saul in this whole account. He's looking for some kind of word from Yahweh. And his servant said to him, you know, behold this medium. But the idea was that you should go to the high priest because he's going to go to the high priest and he's going to ask about these two stones, the yes and the no answer, that that's where he should get his answer, not from medium. Or you have later on in Ezra chapter two, where they don't know what to do. Were they to partake or not partake of the most holy food? They don't know until there should be a priest to come who could consult these stones instituted by God, the stones, of course, the Urim and the Thummim. And so it's kind of this divinely inspired, connected to that office understanding of God answering, getting a word from God through the spokesman of God, of the high priest himself. And that's the idea is there's been all kinds of speculation. Is it as a curse or is it a bless? Is it a yes or is it a no? Just kind of how that exactly developed into what it meant. We don't know 
fine details. The rabbis like to speculate in a lot of ways of these things happening. Again, the problem was when you're looking somewhere else. And so that was the issue with Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 28, where he's going to inquire of Yahweh, but he did not get the answer that he wants. He's not getting the answer from the high priest. He's not getting the answer from the Urim or the Thummim. He's not getting that answer there. So the key is always going back to God's word and God's office that he instituted, but not going somewhere else, not just casting lots in general, not going and getting one of these magic eight balls and just shaking it and saying, should I go to the dance or not? And waiting to see if it says yes, maybe, or who knows. But it's particularly related to God's word and his promise in that office of high priest. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest. He's author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of His American Christianity Failed. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions of a question on the righteousness of Christ next. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Come join LCMS Worship next summer for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Trinity Lutheran Church, LCMS of Tryon, North Carolina, also serves the South Carolina Upstate. We uphold the confessional standard of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. We follow the apostolic practice of celebrating the Lord's Supper each Lord's Day using a biblical historic liturgy. Our small parish is teeming with little ones along with many of retirement age. Several Issues Etc. listeners have been welcomed into Christ's fold here from outside Lutheranism. We invite any unchurched in the area to join us at 1015 each Sunday. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer are our guests for responding to your unanswered Bible questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Wolfmiller, Tom asks, after the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us by faith, how does his righteousness then become our own righteousness with reference to the indwelling of Jesus in Galatians 2.20? Yeah, what a beautiful text, Galatians 2.20. I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I would refer Tom and, and all our listeners to a really wonderful article written in the form of Concord. We talked about it actually earlier with the first question. This last document of our Lutheran Confessions, Article 3, uh, deals directly with this question because some people were saying that our righteousness, that righteousness which we have by the gospel, which we talk about in the context of justification, was the divine nature of Christ living in us that overwhelmed, in a way, our sinful nature. And the Lutheran father said, no, that's that's not how we should understand uh, the righteousness that the Lord gives in justification. The righteousness that we have is that righteousness which belongs to Christ, his perfect obedience of the law, act of righteousness, and his perfect suffering under the rejection of the people and the wrath of God, his passive righteousness, that that is given to us. It's accounted to us by faith and that we are righteous with that alien righteousness, that righteousness which does not belong to us, but which is outside of us. It's a judicial reality. We stand before the court of God, and we are guilty of sin, but we stand there, and Jesus offers the evidence of his blood for our acquittal, and we are set free. We're released from that sin and the punishment for that sin. That's the righteousness that justifies. With that righteousness and the faith that believes that promise, the Lord also delivers his Holy Spirit to us so that we begin, and that's a key word, we begin to keep the law, to love God and love the neighbor, and to live a life that is different than the life that we were previously living according to the flesh and the desires of the flesh. And it is Christ in us and the Spirit in us that empowers that new life, those new motions, new desires, new actions and activities, that hoping in God in the midst of suffering, trusting in God when it's time to die, that gift of prayer by the Spirit, all those things. So that righteousness is begun in us as a fruit of faith. It's important to know that that righteousness, that life of love which begins after faith, is not the righteousness that justifies us before the throne of God. And so that's the connection with the two and that important distinction that we always want to maintain. David has a question, Pastor Ketchmeyer. I have a friend who says that Joseph was a tyrant because in Genesis 47, 13 through 26, he takes all the Egyptian people had and in the end made them slaves who would also continue to be taxed a fifth in perpetuity. I have never considered it, but what do you say? Well, this is an interesting take on the scripture, but I, I think what we have here, David, is just an example of where somebody has a thought or a notion, then looks at the scripture and then kind of puts that thought or notion into the text itself and not letting the Holy Spirit speak through the text is that what is the Holy Spirit teaching us in this text? What is the whole point of this text? Now, the whole point of this text is to look to Joseph is the man that God himself is appointed, the man who is a type of Christ the man who was rejected by his brothers because of the vision that he was given, that these things would take place, that Joseph, by the Holy Spirit, was enabled to interpret visions and dreams. And so in this text, what we see is we see the living Lord interacting in his creation to sustain it, giving this opportunity for the man Joseph in the midst of suffering and trials and tribulations to rise to the right hand of Pharaoh, knowing these uh, dreams of this famine that was going to take place. And then Joseph is in the position to do something about the famine so that God himself sustains the body 
The creator loves his creation, but he does this through instrumental means. So I think we want to look at this in the context of the book of Genesis and really what is taking place here. So yes, if you just lift this text out of the context and you try to put it in the light of something outside of scripture, you're going to end up ultimately reading something into the text. I mean, the text itself, it is strange by itself if it just stands alone. I mean, you read through this and says, matter of fact, there was no food in the land. Okay. There was a famine. It was very severe. All right. So you're reading this and you have this description of a very severe famine. It's so severe that you have all of the people coming to Joseph who has all this food. And so the text reads that he gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt in exchange for the grain. Now, to be fair and to actually read the text as it's given to us, we're not going to read into the text and say that he's a tyrant and he was trying to cheat people out of their money. We're not going to say that he was making a profit off of the backs of the people. I mean, that's not the point of the text. The point is there was a very, very severe famine, and the people came to Joseph, who God had placed in a position to take care of the people, to give the bread, the daily bread, as the representatives of God on earth, the kings should be doing. And so this is what Joseph is doing. And so when you read the text in the context, you understand these events. But again, if you take it out of the context, context, it does sound very strange because it's like, well, there's no money. And so now they come back and they say, give us food. We don't have any money. And then he says, well, give me your livestock. So then they give the livestock in exchange for food. And so, yes, if you take this out of the context, you say, hey, look, this is a tyrant. He's taking advantage of the situation and he's trying to gain livestock that doesn't rightfully belong to him. But there's no reason to read that into the text. I mean, the text is given to us to teach us that this is how God himself sustains his creation through instrumental means. And so then, of course, you go from the livestock to the land. They come back and they need more food because of this severe famine. So it's describing to us how severe this is. And it's very difficult for us to even comprehend or understand. And now they they don't have any livestock. It's like, okay, well, in exchange for food, give me your land. And so now you have the land and now you have this whole idea of a tax that's placed upon them, that what's going to take place is the first offerings from the land will go to Pharaoh and to the king. And so, yes, if you read this out of the context, you would say, hey, this is a guy who's taking advantage, but you have to read that into the text. And scripture is is not something that we can just change and distort and twist and make it mean what we want it to mean, but we want to understand what is the intended meaning of the author Moses through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if you actually read the text in that context, you understand that Genesis is ending on this note with Joseph. And Joseph, of course, ultimately will die. Genesis began with the hope of the seed who was going to crush the serpent's head, who would restore humanity to life once again. Because of sin, we are separated from God and death enters into creation. But we're waiting for the one who is going to redeem creation. And Joseph is a picture of that one, of the Christ to come, but he's not him. And so you see this in the life of Joseph. So you're not going to see in Joseph the life of a tyrant, that that's what Jesus is. Instead, Jesus is one who was rejected by his own, sold into slavery, went down, down, down into the dungeon, but then ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is what Jesus does. And so now as the one who is ascended, the ascended Lord, the King of Kings, he's the one that continues to give us prophets and continues to give us his word through the successors of the apostles 
apostles in the preaching office. But what's key to understand here is that's how Genesis is going to end, waiting for the Savior. As Jacob is telling his children on his death, I wait for the salvation of Yahweh. That's waiting for the Savior to come, waiting for the Messiah to come, the one who's going to undo all these things in creation, where there is a famine, and there is death, and there is a separation with God. But that's where Exodus then opens up and begins by setting everything in that historical context of how the people of Israel ended up in the land of Egypt under this extreme severe famine. But it's in the book of Exodus where we're told immediately in chapter one that a new king of Egypt arose and he didn't know Joseph. So the comparison here is not that Joseph is the tyrant, but the new king he's the tyrant. And he's the one who said, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And so what does this tyrant do? That's the Pharaoh, the king in Exodus chapter one, will he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens? So that's the issue of the tyrant. And then that's a situation we have in the book of Exodus, where now you have another type of Christ, one who rises, a baby who's born, which is Moses. And he's going to be the one who delivers the Israelites out of slavery and captivity in Egypt to point to us what Christ is going to do is the greater Moses defeating the greater tyrant of tyrants, which of course is the devil, delivering us from slavery and captivity to sin. So I think that the scripture is always to be read in its context, understanding that the primary purpose of the scripture is to show forth Jesus his person, his work, that because of sin, we are separated from God, but because of our Savior, we have reconciliation with our Creator. So I don't think we want to take to the text an outside reading of tyranny and then just assume, look, Joseph is a tyrant. Instead, we should assume that Joseph is a good man and a good ruler that God had set in place to take care of his people, because that's what the text reads. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Our guest are Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Pastors Ketchelmeyer and Wolfmiller are graduates of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. On the other side, we will talk about the number 144,000 in the book of Revelation. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we are rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul in the Roman Tribune. Paul brought to the council. Paul divides the room, plot to kill Paul, and Paul sent to Felix. Join me. 
Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever. Your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians today is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Come and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of a, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. Talking with Pastor Brian Catchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, responding to your unanswered Bible questions. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Wolfmiller, Cynthia says, I understand the significance of the number, but won't all believers be sealed? We belong to him. Then in Revelation 9, John sees a great multitude. I can't be one of the 144,000 as I'm not Jewish and not a male. Thus my question, what's Cynthia referring to and how do you respond? Sure, it's a beautiful vision that the Lord gives to John, Revelation 7. It's oftentimes used in funeral texts because it's one of these visions of heaven that is so sustaining for us. The picture that the Lord gives is of those who have escaped the Great Tribulation, and they're wearing these white robes that are made white by the blood of the Lamb. So the beautiful picture is 
it's like we're born in a robe and every time we sin, it's like we get a mustard stain on this robe or a tear. And by the end of our lives, it's just tattered, filthy rags. And and now we're standing in line to go into the throne room of God. And there's this vat filled with the blood of the lamb. And we dip the robe in that vat and it comes out glorious without spot or stain or wrinkle. It's the robe of the righteousness of Christ, and we're decked in that glorious robe as we enter into heaven. And John will hear and see something. And when he hears the number of those who are dressed in these robes, he hears 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And it's listed out, 12,000 from this tribe, this tribe, all 12. So he hears the number, 144,000, and then he sees a great multitude which can't be counted. Now, this is one of the great artistic, mysterious gifts of Revelation, is that John will often see something and hear something, and what he hears and what he sees are very, very different, but they describe the same reality. I'll give you an example that happened just two chapters before in chapter 5 of Revelation, where John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and prevailed and is able to open the scroll. And then he looks and he sees a lamb as he had been slaughtered. I mean, if you want two pictures that are different from one another, it's the lion and the lamb. And yet it's the same reality. It's Jesus who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and who is the lamb of God. And so John will hear something and he'll see something. And it's like getting two sides of the same coin. And this pattern goes throughout the entire book of Revelation, and that's the case here. He hears the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, and then he sees the uncountable multitude from every tribe, tongue, race, and people, and that is the same reality. It is a description of the church. So Cynthia is right in this, that the Lord seals all of his people, that that sealing is the gift of baptism. It's the name of Jesus applied to his people that we have by faith, and that it is not limited to 144,000. That 144,000 is preaching that just everybody who the Lord desires to be sealed will be sealed. And we have that great confidence that in our baptism, we are included in that full number of the Lord's host, of the Lord's elect mustered before his throne. And the 144,000 is a way of picturing that there's not one missing, that it's just perfect as the Lord has arranged it. Via Twitter, C.L. Hinkle asks the question, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, what is the book of Enoch? Why is it excluded from the Jewish canon? And is that why it's not in the Bible? I found a podcast from Presbyterians about spooky events. They imply or attribute them to demons, watchers, Nephilim, and cite Enoch as a source. I'm not sure how to respond. Yeah, that's great, CL. I'm not sure how to respond either. See, this is the problem when we're always looking for something that is spooky or scary or something outside of the text of Scripture. We're looking for something to, quote unquote, scare the hell out of somebody, if you will. And so what happens is when you look at these apocalyptic, this is an apocalyptic, literature, Hebrew, Jewish. You're looking at these kind of these events of vision like we 
have in the Bible, like in Ezekiel or in Daniel or in the book of Revelation, where you have this picture of the final judgment. And it's not a pretty sight. I mean, the whole idea of final judgment itself, because God is going to judge the living and the dead. In particular, we confess this as Christ is the one who will judge the living and the dead on the last day, as Jesus himself had said in Matthew chapter 25, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne, and before him he will gather all the nations, and he will separate peoples, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I mean, and when you read that passage, that's scary too, that you have this whole separation. The sheep who hear the voice of the shepherd, they go into paradise to live with Jesus eternally in his loving presence. But the goats, they are sent away into hell that was prepared for the devil and the fallen angels. So yes, this stuff is scary. And uh, the scripture itself is very clear on these things. We don't need to go further. I mean, there's a whole tradition with the artists in the Middle Ages or even prior to that who are trying to paint pictures of how horrible and terrible and, and spooky events will happen on this last day in judgment in hell and the suffering that there is. But I think that when we look at this book of Enoch itself, we understand that it is cited in the scripture. So in Jude, it's referred to. It's referred to as apocalyptic literature that the people of God were very familiar with. So it was probably written sometime around three to 200 BC, maybe two, 300 years before the birth of Christ. And it was a commentary, if you will, this Jewish commentary on these things that are going to happen on the last day. And so in the book of Jude, you have the quotation saying that this is from Enoch. Okay. So you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you have Enoch who walked with God and was more that he's a righteous one, son of Adam. He knows the promise of the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. And so it's this idea that Enoch wrote down this vision like the other prophets later on, Ezekiel or Daniel, or even in the New Testament times, when John sees the vision, the revelation, the apocalypse that we have in the scripture. But the quotation from Judas, just it's a common source that people have known about this writing. And he quotes from it saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness at they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And I think that what we have there, the Holy Spirit gives to us by inspiration. Jude writes this, the very word of God breathed out by God, so that we have a synopsis of this teaching. But really, in essence, all this teaching is, is just a commentary going back to Deuteronomy chapter 33 in the book of Moses. And Moses himself talking about how in chapter 33, verse 2, that Yahweh came from Sinai and drawn from Sire upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And so this is God who's coming in this ten thousands in this kind of this commentary that he will come again, this whole idea of he will come on the last day to judge the living and the dead. And I think that in the scripture, we have enough to understand what it is that sin is serious. Sin separates from God. Sin brings death. 
It brings spiritual death, physical death, and ultimately eternal death. And so that in itself should be scary enough, spooky enough to understand the seriousness of sin. But then it gives to us the comfort in the Bible of the good news of the Savior, the one who comes to save us from the seriousness of this sin so that we would have life right now, spiritual life, while we have physical life, that we're looking to the hope of the resurrection of the body and eternal life. I think that when people emphasize these things. It's the strange idea that people have. They want something outside of the scripture itself. We have the scripture. God gives it to us as a gift so that we can be certain and sure of what God has said, so that we can know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by faith in him, we now stand righteous before God, because in his priestly office, he has made satisfaction for sins, and he continues to intercede for us. So the focus that we want to have is Jesus and his work that saves us from the spookiness and the seriousness of sin that's going to happen in the end, when all of this just, all hell is breaking loose. And you see this in the book of Revelation. I mean, when you look in the book of Revelation, it's very scary and spooky too. And it is ironic that when you have these preachers on the TV, these televangelists, that's kind of the direction they want to go. They want to proclaim this scary message rather than proclaiming the sweet gospel. And they want to stay there. And I think that rather we should focus our attention on Jesus. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Matt has a question on... Titus 3, verse 5, washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, next. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org Enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org slash witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Hi, my name is Rahima Kavuga, Director of Synod Relations at Lutheran Church Extension Fund. We serve the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and your investment with LCEF makes a world of difference. Your dollars enable LCMS churches, schools, and workers to access low-cost loans for vital ministries. Join us today at lcef.org, and let's empower faith, strengthen ministries, and build a stronger LCMS community together. 
issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Wednesday, October the 4th, we're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Wolfmiller, Matt in Wisconsin, says, In the baptismal passage, Titus 3, verse 5, we are saved through the washing of rebirth or regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Rebirth and renewal sound very similar. Are each of these phrases distinct from one another? And if so, what distinct roles do they play in the life and or salvation of the Christian? Great question. I think we can refer back to the answer we discussed earlier. So that rebirth is everything that's accomplished when God, the Holy Spirit, takes a hold of the unbeliever and gives them faith, puts to death the flesh and makes them alive in the spirit, covers them with the righteousness of Christ, claims them as his own. This is conversion and all the things that happen in conversion, including justification, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the new life, and and everything else that the Lord gives. And the renewal is that gift that follows. So if we want to isolate the two and and look at how they're different, just like when you're born, we refer to that as a moment. We celebrate even birthdays, and we remember that moment when we went from inside the womb to outside the womb, and we entered into this life that we're living now. It was a particular moment, and then we have the life that follows it. So rebirth is that being born again by the Word and the water, especially in Titus 3.5 and John 3.5 by the word in James chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1. So that that moment when the Lord claims us as his own, and then the renewal is the life that follows, fighting against the flesh and rejoicing in the gifts of the Spirit. And so both are very important in this Christian life. In fact, the renewal, if you want to think of it this way, is nothing other than returning to the rebirth. Or Luther talks about it when he talks about the significance of baptism is that baptism, which is a singular event, has this ongoing implication in our own lives because we're daily drowning the flesh and living according to the Spirit, so that this rebirth becomes for us a daily reality, a life of repentance, of hearing the law, of knowing our sin, of knowing God's will, of repenting of of our failures, of rejoicing in the kindness of Christ, of praying for the Holy Spirit, and of beginning to love and serve our neighbor. And so that rebirth showing up every day is our renewal. Pastor Ketchmeyer Matthew says, First, I want to say that I'm a total believer in Christ. Nothing will change my mind. I have wondered, though, and I'm not an expert in any way over the Bible, I do know that Noah's Ark was very, very big, but do you think that it's possible that God had plans of evolution? I know that he had two of every animal come aboard, But as he saw how the world was going to play out, do you think he played on having X number of finches on board? Or do you think to save space, he had the original finch, and from there he knew that they would evolve into different species as they would around the world? My family and I have talked about this, and I wonder what the experts thought. This is a great question that gives us the opportunity to make a distinction. I mean, that's always the art of theology is making a distinction. So when we talk about evolution, we want to make a distinction between what we would classify as microevolution and macroevolution. So we do not agree to the theory of evolution, which promotes this macroevolution on this large scale from one kind to another kind, that you have a 
kind, which would be, let's say, the ape, and then a macro evolution that it evolves into another kind, which would be a man. So that's the, really the issue here at hand, is making this distinction between macro evolution from one kind into another kind, evolving and changing, versus what we would hold to as micro evolution within the kind itself. So let me explain that in scripture, when it talks about God creating everything according to its kind, that's the the plants and the animals. This is in Genesis chapter one. And what is unique to that creating according to its kind is making them male and female. So what does it mean to be according to the kind is able to reproduce according to the kind. So the Hebrew word is mean. This is the kind. So you have a dog can reproduce with a dog according to its kind. A cat reproduces according to a cat, according to its kind. But you don't have a dog and a cat, okay, according to different kinds, becoming something different like that. And so it has to do with reproduction. And that's why in Genesis chapter 6, Noah is gathering the animals two by two according to the kind. So what he's doing is male and female. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort or kind, they shall come to you to keep them alive. I mean, that's the whole idea of reproduction. And and so when we talk about macro evolution, that's kind of transcending the kinds. Okay. So you go from an ape to a man. We reject that. That's the theory of evolution. But we do see this understanding of a micro evolution in which you have different breeds of dogs. So yes, originally in the ark, there would be the dogs, two male, female, according to its kind, their kind, and you'd have cats according to their kinds, but then you have these different breeds of cats that go forth from that. And in fact, what happens is when we talk about this, when the theologians start to make this distinction between a kind and that reproduction, male and female, we have this word that's been used, which is baramin, which is basically taking the Hebrew word bara, which is the verb to create out of nothing, and then the mean is kind. So what we're doing is we're looking at the created kind, a created animal or a plant that is distinguished from one that has developed through this process of micro evolution. So according to the kind, that baramine, that original created kind, then you do have different breeds that we would see with different types of dogs. And so I think it's helpful to look at it in that way. Robert has a question, Pastor Wolfmiller. How was it and who determined that the four Gospels were presented in its current traditional order in the Bible? Is there a religious basis for such an order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Thank you for explaining something that has perplexed me for a while. Yeah, this is a historical question, and and I bet you Pastor Ketchemeyer has some more insight, too. And this is just me speculating. I think if you go back, you could probably find them listed in different orders. And maybe this is helpful to remember, that you have all the different books of the Bible are unique books. And so the Bible itself is a collection of 66 different texts. And the order of those books, I don't think, is arranged by God. We just have them together and we put them 
in order to be helpful. We put the Gospels as the life of Jesus together, and then Acts as the history of the church, and then the epistles of Paul, then the Catholic epistles, the general epistles, and Revelation comes last. We don't group them by author, otherwise we'd have Luke and Acts together and all the writings of John together and so forth. We kind of put them by genre. And I think that grouping by genre means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke will go together as the synoptics, and then John sort of stands as its own. I've always thought it was curious that John was there between these two volumes of Luke, Luke and Acts, as a divider, and that Luke and Acts, it'd be nice if we had them write together. I don't know how you get that. There's a an early list. I think Irenaeus lists them together in this order, and that's pretty early on. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it seems like that ordering came about really early in the church. But that's what I know about that. I think that we always want to be in the realm of church history. I mean, that's what Pastor Wolf Miller alluded to at the beginning, and especially when he was talking about Irenaeus, one of the church fathers. And that's our Lutheran heritage connected to the ancient church. And you look back at the church fathers and the understanding of the church fathers, Eusebius of Caesarea, the church historian, it's Matthew who's first. This understanding that Matthew was going to be originally, it was written in Aramaic to the Hebrew-speaking people. And then later on, everything was written in Greek for the Gentile-speaking people in particular. But when you have this understanding in the modern age with higher criticism trying to shred apart the Bible, the assumption is that, well, Mark was first because it's the shortest. (laughs) So it's the idea that you have the shortest book first and then you add to it later on. And so Matthew's bigger, so that can't be first. Well, that's not the testimony of the early church. The testimony of the early church is that Matthew is first. This is the the Hebrew text. This is the Aramaic text. And I I think that what's significant here too is the understanding of the early church is that, that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel because Peter and Mark are working together that Mark is a disciple of Peter, and that Luke's gospel is in conjunction with Paul, Paul's gospel in essence, because Luke is a disciple of Paul. And of course, you go from the transition of the Jews to the Greeks. I mean, you go from Peter being the head of the apostles, and then he's to the Jewish people, and then you have Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so in particular in Luke's gospel, there's a lot of references to Gentiles being converted to the faith. And so there's a kind of a different circumstance with Luke's gospel to the Greek-speaking world, the Gentile world. But I think what's unique with John is, Pastor Wolfmiller said, that you have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's John who is the one who lives the longest here on earth. Remember, all the other apostles die the martyr's death, but it's John who doesn't. John is the one who's exiled to Patmos. So John is the one who is the longevity of all of the apostles, and he's there to kind of just bring a whole synopsis of everything together, a completeness that he's still alive when the church is going to the Gentiles and things are going great. And then, of course, you get to Irenaeus. So I think it all comes back to church history. Pastor Wolf Miller, before we let you go, your congregation, St. Paul, Austin, Texas, is going to be hosting its fourth annual Lutheran Young Adult Conference. Tell us about that. Yeah, October 14th. This will be really great. It'll be a Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., so coming up right here at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, and it's for really anyone age 18 to 35-ish, a young adult gathering. The topic will be the conscience, 
I'll be talking about the conscience. Jonathan and I will do a session on singing about the conscience. We'll be looking into that. And there'll be time also for social events, both during the event and also Friday night before, Saturday night. And then hopefully people can stay over for Sunday if they're traveling in. I think we've got people coming from eight or nine different states so far, which would be great. So if you are a young adult Lutheran and you'd want to come down for that, that's wonderful. Or if you know any, make sure to invite them. If you go to my website, wolfmuller.co, and there's a events tab, you can find all the information there and register is there as well. Hopefully this will be continues to be a, a great place for Lutheran young adults, not only to learn the scriptures, but also to meet each other and to get that connection happening. So all are invited and hope to see a lot of you down here. Find out more about the 4th Annual Lutheran Young Adult Conference, Saturday, October 14th at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, on the Talk On Demand Archives page at issuesetc.org. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thank you. Great to be here, Todd. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One. And he is author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, thanks. Thank you. My pleasure. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Corey Moss about law and gospel in the Christian life. We'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor, And we'll respond to your email talkback at issuesetc.org and the Issues Etc. comment line 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Muscouta, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Muscouta, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmuscouta.com.